We are, we are near the end of this series. We're rounding third and headed home. And I was, I don't know about you, but I was kind of hoping for something kind of nice and, and safe and easy. But uh, be, when, you, when you preach through a, a book verse by verse, you, you'll, you'll hit verses that you don't want to address. And, that, and that's happening today. And, and I'll get to that here in a second. But I, I think primarily uh, that what we're going to read about today or, or look at today is going to help us to know how to navigate Monday through Friday. Uh, most discipleship material teaches you how to be a Christian on nights and weekends. And if you work weekends, it doesn't leave a whole lot of time to be a Christian. And so this, Paul very helpfully says, hey, this is what Monday um, uh, through Friday looks like, and it's going to be really helpful. But before that, there's a couple of landmines in here that I, I want to help us navigate and make sense of. Because I, when I first became a Christian and, and I read this text, I, I remember thinking like, uh, well, wait a minute, shouldn't Paul just be like a, saying slavery is horrible and, and don't do it? And why is he telling us how to negotiate master-slave relationships? I mean, that, that was a little bit of a, you know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. And then, of course, you know, that's a lot of, it's a big reason why some skeptics say, you know, you'll say, hey, do you believe in the Bible? Oh, yeah, I believe in the Bible. Uh, oh, then you believe in slavery then. It's like, uh, wait, do, uh, I'll put my hand down. I don't want to, I don't believe in, I don't believe in that. Um, and, uh, you know, the knock on, on, on Christians is that they just mindlessly believe things that are irrelevant and outdated. And that's half true. Christians do believe mindlessly some things and they don't give thought to some things. Uh, but if it's from God, from the Bible, it's anything but irrelevant and outdated, but it could be misunderstood. It could be misunderstood. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, if you ever try to communicate something to someone and they took it out of context, ah, it's so frustrating. I don't want you to take what I said out of context. And the person never really takes the time to really understand what you really meant. Well, that, that can happen with the Bible. The Bible was written by God, but it was also written in a time-space world, which means in a particular era. And you have to, at times, understand that context and understand what was happening or you're going to miss the point all together, um, <clears throat> which is why I want to encourage you to not just read the Bible, but study the Bible and use commentaries. I've got a, a, a few commentaries I just would recommend for you. The, this first one here, uh, you'll see this on the screen, it's a picture of it anyway. Uh, this is the ESV commentary. It means that every time you go through um, from the Old Testament, Genesis to Revelation, it'll just share a few thoughts and help you understand uh, some of the more difficult terminology and for you to understand that con it's got pictures and maps so you'll do great with it and so we uh, it's about 30 bucks but this is kind of like first base kind of deal if you want something a little bit more in depth uh, this th I'd recommend this two set volume it's uh, Old Testament commentary New Testament commentary this will run you about 50 bucks but it's a little bit more in depth uh, there's also books that will help you understand just one letter so like there's two commentaries, well, there's more than two, but the two main commentaries I looked at to study Colossians, I'll show you this next one, uh, it's by N.T. Wright, uh, just on Colossians and uh, Philemon. It's really, it's easy to read and very understandable, kind of uses layman terms. Uh, the other one's a little bit more serious, more scholastic, is by uh, Pillar on uh, Colossians, and this is awesome if you really want to get and understand the Greek and Hebrew, or if you need a nap, I mean, either one will... Uh, it's great for both, but it'll run you about 50 bucks. So that's, you know, it might just take some sleeping pills. But if you want to understand the text, it'll be cheaper. But if you want to understand the text, I mean, this is great. And, and it's important that you, you understand. Yeah, you need some of these materials to, to help you understand what was going on. Because he, here's the problem. When we think, when we, when we read slavery 
master in the Bible, automatically we think like colonial America, and, and that's our view of slavery, um, which is not what was happening uh, in, in first century Rome. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of big difference. Number one, in colonial America, America, it was racial, meaning it was it was one race or multiple races oppressing another race, and, and that's not that wasn't the case in when we're talking about these kind of slave relationships. Um, in this context, it was, um, I mean, anyone could be a slave. I mean, it, so, so everybody w- were slaves, whether you're Roman or Greek or, or Jewish or whatever. Everyone at, at, in some context, and you couldn't tell the difference between, um, oh, that's a slave, that's not a slave, in terms of how they were viewed and treated. Secondly, um, in colonial America, it was permanent. And uh, most slavery in this context was not permanent. It was, it was uh, temporary and voluntary. That was another thing. It was, it, um, and thirdly, um, in colonial America, it was degrading and people were taught like possessions and not people. And in this kind of slavery, they were often part of the household. They were, they were educated. Uh, they were, uh, a lot of them were policemen and, and doctors and, and teachers. And if you, you know, you read through the Old Testament and like Daniel, Daniel was a high-ranking official and, and, but he was a slave. Joseph in the Bible was a slave, uh, but he was second in command to Pharaoh. So the, it's the slavery scenario is, is, is completely different. And when it comes to like colonial America slavery, uh, Paul does and the Bible does say that's not good. In 1 Timothy 9 through 10, Paul's outlying, hey, here, here's what it means to be ungodly. And one of the things he mentions is enslaving somebody else. Uh, not that that didn't happen back then, but he's saying, hey, look, this is not, you don't, this is, you don't enslave other people. You don't take people against their will and enslave them. That's not, the Bible unequivocally says, says no to that. In fact, that's what God was doing with um, the, uh, his own people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. He was saying, I'm going to free them from slavery. Slavery is, is not a good thing. So the Bible uh, speaks out against this. But what we have here in the Roman Empire was something different. This was something I said was voluntary. The, the conditions were just. In fact, a lot of this slavery happened because somebody wanted to buy a piece of property. And so they put themselves up as collateral. And so they said, hey, look, if I can't pay this off, I'll be your slave for a particular period of time and, and they it was agreed upon and and there were rules around that and so I mean that I'm that happened to me I mean I remember growing up and uh, I broke a neighbor's window guess what my parents did they sold me into slavery to my neighbor <laughs> for a few weekends to pull weeds and rake yards that was kind of the slavery there and you do that today you borrow money you can't pay it back you accrue interest and late fees and the money that you do earn uh, there's a very real sense that it doesn't you you don't use that money to first pay uh, put food on the tables or to uh, improve your lifestyle, you, you are a slave to that credit company. And so I want us to kind of have that framework that, that, that these are two completely different um, systems. Uh, secondly, um, secondly, I want us to consider who got rid of slavery. How, how did slavery end? If you're a histor- historians ask questions that normal people don't ask, right? So normal people look at slavery, which, by the way, has happened as long as people have has existed. Slavery has always been there. Uh, people have always tried to oppress others. It's, it's always been there. And so we look and say, how did anyone ever enslave someone else, which is happening today, by the way, in other parts of the world. But how did everyone, anyone ever do that? 
And, but historians look at the fact that it always happened, and they ask the question, whose idea was it to stop it? And that's a good question. Whose idea was it to stop? Where did that idea come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. Historians give credit to, to, the, to people who were central in stopping slavery, whether it be Wilberforce or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. And all of the, came, they were Christians that came from the Bible. And so I want us to, when we look at like, at, for you, it's like, you know, hey, does the Bible condone slavery? Don't just read it. Understand there was a different context, but understand the, the broader message of what the Bible has to say uh, otherwise, you're going you're gonna to hit some landmines and blow up and not be able to answer questions. But lastly, the thing I would say is that Paul's point here isn't to address uh, a societal system. A third of the Roman Empire were slaves. There are things in our culture right now that I would say are unjust, but what we don't do is we don't spend time going through all the laws and saying, hey, we should speak out against this or speak out against this. But what we do is say, within this framework, this is how you need to live to be a Christian. And Paul's point here in this section of scripture isn't to speak on whether or not slavery, any kind of slavery, is just or unjust. But his point is to simply say, hey, Monday's coming around, and this is how you need to respond if you're in this situation. You see, the big picture here is that he spent the first two chapters of Colossians saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how you become a Christian. And then if you are a Christian, chapter 3, he begins to say, therefore, you live this way. And he addressed all kinds of life, and this is how you deal with sin, and and this is how you come together in corporate worship on Sundays or in group. It's not just singing melodies and, and reading the word. I want to apply to all of your life. So this is how the marriage relationship works. This is how... Uh, this is how the relationship works in the family. And then he points to this is how your relationship works if you are in this situation, either a master or a slave. And the closest thing that we have in our culture to this situation really has to do with being an employer or an employee. As an employee, you contractually agree to come under someone's authority. It may be your decision to take a job, but once you take the, that job, it's not your decision when you show up. It's not your decision on certain things. And as an employer, you are, you're, you're, you're contracting to treat your employee a certain way. And, and this is a, it's a very similar, it's more, it's, this is the context that we're in. And this is, this is why we're going to talk about what does it look like to be an employee and an employer. So I want you to understand that the slavery bit, but, I'll, but just to kind of bring it into context of what we're going to talk about today, this is the closest thing that we have. And so what, how does Paul address that? Well, the first thing he says is, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Employees, em- obey your employers. Now, when we heard the, hear words like obey and submission, we're like, no. I don't, you know, it's like what, like we don't, those words are, terrible words in our minds. But the reason why they're terrible words in our minds isn't because order and submission and obedience and authority are bad in and of themselves. It's just that we've had bad experiences. Or also, there is a rebel inside of us as well. But it's because we've had bad experiences. So the reason why you reject this is because you had an authority figure in life, whether it was a coach or a parent or, or a boss or whatever, you had some authority in your figure in your life that abused that authority, and that's what you think of. When you think about it, that's what you think of. But order and submission and obe- are, are very, very godly. How godly are they? Well, they're as godly as God. Within the, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is order and submission. They're, they are co-equal. They, are, they perfectly honor, love each other. They're, they're, they're all God. 
but somehow, inexplicably, there's order and submission. The son always does what the father says. The spirit obeys the son and the father. There's submission and order in that. And that's the way, or there is submission and order in the created, uh, when, when God created Adam and Eve and in the garden, when everything was perfect and everything was as it should be, there was order and submission. And like everything else, when sin entered the world, uh, order and submission got distorted because people got distorted. Sin entered the world. And so now we have these negative views, not because order and submission in and of themselves, authority in and of itself is bad, but because sin, like everything else, sin has tainted that. Just like you and I, we have been tainted by sin. We have become not um, friends of God, but we've become rebels of God. So how does God treat those of us who have been tainted by sin? What does he do? Does he throw us away? No, no, he, he redeems us. So what do we do with something that God had created to be good, but now has become tainted? We seek to redeem it. We seek to restore it. We seek to make it whole. And besides, I would think anyone here would agree that you believe that you should have authority over your life. If I was to say, do you believe that you should have authority over your life? You would say, yeah, of course. So you do believe in authority. just has to be the right person. So we, we do believe in those concepts. We just like, it just, I don't know that I can trust somebody else. So he says, Hey, I want you to obey. Obeying is a good thing. In God's economy, we're all co-equal. In, in his community, we're all, co- we're all together. We're all made in his, in his image. Page one of our Bibles establishes that man and woman, that, that uh, regardless of your background or your, uh, your place in society, page one of our Bible says we're all equal. Why are we all equal? Because we have the same role? No, because we all are created in his image. That's the definition of equality is that we are created in his, his image, not the role that we have in society. Our, our culture distorts that and says it's the role that you play in society determines equality. Well, then that's wicked because are we going to say someone who's a paraplegic is less valuable than someone who's not? Because they play a different role in society. They, no, no, no. They are equal because we're all image bearers of God, regardless of your role, regardless of what situation you find yourself in life. Now, within that, God has different, he has people play different roles. And there's, within those roles, there is order and submission. So he says, obey those who are in authority over you, whether that's you are a child to a parent, uh, you know, an athlete to a, a coach, or, or the government or if you're an employee, an employer. And then he says this, he kind of teases out a little bit. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleaser, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So this means that you don't cheat your boss by only giving it 100% when she's around, but when she's not around, you act differently. Don't get into eye service. Don't get into only performing at your best when they are around, when they can see you, when she can see you, when he can see you. Don't get into that. Don't get into people-pleasing. Don't suck up when the boss is around. You act the same whether they're around or not. That word uh, sincerity um, has this, it says, it means like single-eyed or single-focused that you're looking, it has, it's, you're consistent. You are a consistent person. It's what it means to be uh, a person of integrity, uh, that word integrity comes from the Latin word integer. And all my math people know that means it's a whole number, not a fraction. So we get, ho- we get the whole of you the whole time if you're a person of integrity. We don't get you, this part of you over here and then another fraction of you on this side. No, you're, you're the same regardless of the situation. And that's what he's saying. When you work, when you go to work, when you go to your job, you be consistent whether or not your boss is looking 
or not. Why? Because your boss is awesome? No, because you fear the Lord. I want you to, so he's orientating us to honor God and to obey God by obeying our earthly masters. Whether that be your coach, whether that be your mom and dad, whether it be your boss at work. Not because they're great leaders, but because you fear the Lord. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing at giving 100% to your boss 100% of the time? Are you taking your foot off the gas when they're not around and then putting it back on when they come? Paul's saying, your earthly master may not be around, but your heavenly master most certainly is. And that is who you really work for. And what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to give 100%. Are you just doing it some of the time? I read this week um, that up to three, the average person spends three hours, of, three hours of their work week on social media and the internet, not counting all the other time last year. So that's, that's like 10% of your week. The average person at their best gives 90% to their employer. What if at the end of the month you got your check and it was 90% of what it was supposed to be? <laughs> Outrageous. I'm taking him to court. Oh, yeah? You might want to reconsider lest he take you to court. It's cheating is what it is. Paul's saying, don't, on the low end, don't cheat your boss, but on the high end, here's why you really should do it, is because you're doing it as unto the Lord. And that's where he goes here. Your true boss is what? He says, he can, he says whatever you do, work heartily. That word heartily means with zeal and gusto, passion. Ask for the Lord and not for men. See, Paul is just bashing this idea that our life is compartmentalized. Like he only really cares about what we do here on Sunday or in the morning or, you know, at community group. But, you know, about my work and, and staff meetings and lunch breaks. And he doesn't really care about, no, no. He's saying, look, all of life, you do every moment of your day as unto, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. So whatever you do, whatever you're doing, whether you're the, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you're, uh, you know, you work a shift at a, you know, fast food restaurant, whether you love what you do or whether you hate what you do, work with zeal, passion, and gusto 100% of the time. Because what you're doing is doing unto, don't just kind of do your job. Don't just kind of grin and bear. Don't just, just kind of come in there and like, oh, you know, another day, another, you know. Come in there with zeal and gusto, knowing that you're not working for a boss, but you're working for the Lord. You're, you're, you're working for him. See, this is, God wants you to see that every moment of your life is a moment to worship God. Every moment. Not just some moments. Not just the 90 minutes here on a Sunday. Every moment is an opportunity. When you go to work, it's an opportunity for you to say, I'm living not for myself, not for you, not for anyone else. I'm living for God. Well, if you're just going to say, if I'm living for God, God wants you to say, okay, practically, you do the job that's put in front of you. It doesn't seem very spiritual. Flipping hamburgers doesn't seem very spiritual. Mowing a yard doesn't seem very spiritual. Counting numbers doesn't seem very spiritual, but 
Paul is saying everything that you do has a spiritual element. Everything that you do is an opportunity to worship God. That's why all things being held equal, all things being held equal, education, talent, whatever, Christians, believers in Jesus should be the best workers out there because what motivation, we have the highest motivation because we're not working for a promotion or paycheck, we're working as unto the Lord. Work is a good thing. God loves work. He, God himself is a worker. God created work before the fall. Work is not, okay, now that you messed up, you got to work. No, what happened, like everything else, when, when, when sin entered the world, it distorted work. So work was cursed. Relationships were cursed. You know, this relationship between man and wife, it's, I'm going to make it a problem. And he said, I'm going to curse the ground. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to pay the bills. You're going to sweat. It's not going to respond the way it should respond. Thorns are going to grow up. Weeds are going to grow up. It's going to be difficult for you. It's a part of the curse. Now, check this out. Work is going to be in heaven. Work is going to be in heaven. It's, it says that some are going to be in charge of five cities and ten cities, and I don't know how, we're, I don't know how it's going to play out, it, you know, it's, you know, or if there's going to be politicians or not. Or, I don't know what kind of specific work there will be, but I know that there will be work, redeemed work, holy work. There w- it won't be by the sweat of our brow. It'll, it'll be like it was before sin, but intrinsically work is good, and, and it can be a means of worship. This is particularly helpful if your job sucks. <laughs> or if you hate your boss or you hate the people you work with. Excuse me, you don't like very much. Hate's a bad word. My kids tell me that all the time. So I told them and now they tell me. That's how it works. And so be careful what you tell your kids. That's the point. Okay, so the, uh, where was I? So if, if you're in this situation where you feel like, you know, you have this terrible, terrible job, where do you get the motivation to give it your best? Hey, man, you're working for Jesus. You're, you're working for him. It's, he's not saying do this as if and like and, you know, imagine that you're working for Jesus. He says, no, you are working for Jesus. So we work with zeal knowing that we are actually working for Jesus. Now check this out. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as you reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that you can still give your company the best even though you think your pay is unfair. Even though you think your conditions are unfair. Why? Because God promises to reward you. If you don't think you get paid enough, God will reward you. If you think you're being untreated, if you think you're being treated unfairly, God will reward you. Sometimes we can get caught up in this trap, well, I don't get paid enough, so I'm not going to work as hard. Don't do that. Romans 12, 9 says very plainly, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you are mistreated, the way that you respond isn't that you mistreat them. It's very, slap on one side, let them slap the other. Cause you to walk a mile, walk two miles. Why? Not because that seems fair in your eyes, but because God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I will Repay, I will reward. And then he says, I will disreward. 
You got this going for you. If you're in a situation where you feel like you're underpaid and mistreated, God will reward you. Do you trust him or do you don't trust him? And he will disreward those who mistreat you. You don't, you don't, you getting revenge is not your job. Don't take a job that is, God says, is exclusively his. Don't go there. That's, it's not a safe place to go. All right? It's not a safe place to go. He doesn't want to take on that responsibility. He says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality, which means that if you mistreat your boss, you will be disrewarded. There is no partiality. The, um, so if you, if, you, if you know that you're really working for the Lord and not a boss, this will free you from the temptation to underwork. This will free you from the temptation to underwork. But yet, if you're really working, from, working, working for the Lord, this will also free you from the temptation to overwork as well. Maybe it's like, man, man underworking is like the first, I mean, your wife is saying this or your husband's saying this. Maybe underworking is like the furthest thing from your uh, temptation. Like, I mean, you've never worked a 40-hour week in your life. I mean, you've, I mean that would be a, an easy, easy week for you. And your temptation is on the other way. Um, you need to understand that ultimately you're not working for a boss and you're not working for yourself. <laughs> I laugh on the inside every time someone says to me, I, I'm my own boss because I could never work for someone else. Just like, buddy, buckle up. Something's going to happen that's going to turn that upside down. But anyway, um, but it's just, but maybe, maybe you get caught up in working too much. Maybe you feel like you need to get ahead and get promoted, and so you're always working hard. You're always putting in more hours than you need to because you don't want to upset your boss. Or maybe it's just because you're just, you're ambitious for a career, overly ambitious for a career, which, hey, get promoted, make a lot of money. I mean, do, those, those things are not bad in themselves. But here's the question, who are you working for? Who's your authority? Who's your boss? You see, if, you're, if your boss is, is God, if it's Jesus, it will keep you from underworking and not giving it your best. But if your boss, if you, your boss truly is Jesus, it will keep you from overworking as well. Because you're only going to want to do what God says. Because God, God wants you to, A, love your families and have a relationship with your wife and your kids and, and your community. And, 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 and he doesn't want you to strive. He wants you to work, but he doesn't want you to strive in your work. So, the, so how, do you, how do you maintain that tension between like, well, Brian, do I work really hard or do I not work really hard? Tell me which, what, which one is it? Well, the tension is, and the way you solve that tension, the way you, where you get it right is that you do your work as unto the Lord. Because look, man, there's going to be periods of time where you are going to have to work a lot. Like if you're an accountant, the beginning of April, that's not a nine-to-five job. All right, some of you need to know, we pay taxes in America, okay? April 15th is like the tax day, okay? All right, okay. Is that a youth group on work? Okay. Um, (laughs) I don't understand what he's saying. He's talking about taxes. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get it. Um, so trusting Jesus will help you from not stealing from your company, but also uh, it'll keep you from, uh, from overworking because if you're trusting Jesus, 
you won't underwork because you know that you're going to get justice. You're going to get your fair reward. God will repay you. So because you're trusting, if you're working for him, you can trust him even though you're getting underpaid or you're in bad conditions. But also, if you're really trusting him to provide for you, and you're really trusting him to give you everything you need. You don't need to get into overworking as well. And, and there's a story about that. There's a story of, of Daniel in the Bible. You can read about this in Daniel 1 in the Old Testament. It's that he, was, he was put in a situation. He was, um, he was in the, the king's court, so to speak, and one of the advisors. And uh, his, he was only, he felt in his conscience from God that he was only to eat vegetables. I won't get into all the details, but just... Trust me on that one. So he was only allowed to eat vegetables, but the king wanted him to eat, you know, steak and other different and other stuff to like be really healthy and uh, be able to be strong and and not to waste away. And so we, I'll read, I'll pick it up there. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So he says, hey boss, I don't want to, I, I don't. You're asking me to do something I don't feel comfortable doing. You, you know, I'm, I'll give you my best, but I, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. And it says, therefore, he asked him not to do this. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, not Lord in heaven, but my king, my boss. So, my, you, know, you know, I'm your boss, but I have a boss. And I'm, I'm afraid of what my boss is going to do who assigned you food and drink. So you, my boss said that you need to do this. I would love to help you out, but my, my boss is breathing down my neck for you to do this. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youth that are his own age? So hey, look, everybody else is working 60 hours. Every, all these other departments, they're doing this, they're putting in the time, and if we're gonna stay ahead, if I'm gonna hit my bonus, you gotta work with me. You gotta stay with me. We gotta keep up with this. And Daniel says, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And so the guy says, so you would endanger my head with the king? So the boss says to Daniel, hey, there's real consequences. If we don't do this, I mean, my head literally is on the chopping block. I'm not going to get fired, but I'm going to literally lose my head. The consequences are very real. Maybe you're in that situation. Whether you're the employer or maybe you're the guy in the... Hey, look... I, you, God, that my boss is asking me to do something that I don't feel in good conscience I should do. Because yes, my, my God says give 100% to your, this company. Give, I'm going to give 100%, but I'm not going to sacrifice my family. I am not going to sacrifice my, the other things that God has called me to do as well. I am going to, this is what I'm going to do. So what, what does he say? Then Daniel said to the steward, Uh, who, had, who had assigned them over him. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the foods be observed and, the, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and testified them for 10 days. And at the, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter. Back then, it was good to be fat. And uh, in flesh, that all the youths who ate their kings. Um, so... Here's the question, guys. Is Jesus on the throne or isn't he? I mean, this really puts it right into perspective. When you have a boss who says, you better do this or else, 
but you're not working for him primarily. You're working for a heavenly authority. What do you do in that situation? This guy's head was going to get cut off. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go there. Now, God showed him favor. And and I do believe that in a very real sense that God will show you favor. I think if you truly work as unto the Lord in all that you do, I think you're going to be a prize in that company. I think your boss is going to love you. But even if he doesn't, I love a few chapters later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, are, they were getting ready to be thrown in the fiery furnace because they would not bow down to this false god. He says, we won't do this. And this is what they say. He says, we, our God will save us from that. We believe that God will show us favor. And I believe God will show us favor. But then I love this part even more. He says, but even if he doesn't, we will still not do this. You need to be willing, even if it means getting fired, you need to trust that God will still take care of you. That's what he promised. He promised he will take care of you. He won't take care of you the way that you see fit. He will take care of the way he sees fit. He said, my God will provide to me according to his riches and glory. Not mine, not, not the way I see it, the way he sees it. But the promise is there. So here's that, do, do we trust him or not? If we're working for God, it's going to keep us from underworking, but it's also going to keep us from overworking as well. So what is our motivation for work? Is your motivation, for, do you work for you? Do you work to climb the ladder? Do you work for a security position or whatever? You, you need to lay an ax to that. You need to lay an ax if you're, if you're um, you know, uh, you're just kind of putting in 90%. Just kind of like barely because you, you don't like your job. You need to lay an ax to that, but you also need to lay an ax to thinking like, I'm going to strive in my work and, and that's what my life is about. No, God gave you this opportunity to work and maybe gave you new, unique gifts. You know, I love that it says it in the Chariots of Fire. Um, I hope it's a bad idea to draw out a quote that you've not thought about before. So if I, <laughs> but the guy who, who was running it, it's all about, he says, I believe that God had made me fast. I feel his pleasure when I run. And I think there's a very real sense that you can worship God through your work. But don't twist that into worshiping your work. There's a difference. There's a difference. And how you uh, walk that line is that you're working for God. Living this way will, will protect you from the occupational sweet spot myth. There's this myth out there that just gets woven into you. Hey, what's your dream job? I'd say most of, there's probably very few of us that are actually working in what they would consider their dream job. But maybe you are. But it won't be your dream job for long. It is. Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity. If you try to get fulfillment out of a job, it just, it comes and then it vanishes. It's there for a second and then it's gone. Because you weren't meant to ever get that kind of fulfillment from a job. If you work for the Lord, you just bust that. Because here's the thing. Whether you think your job is amazing, um, just kind of good, okay, or horrible, tomorrow morning, we can, all of us can get 10 out of 10 on job satisfaction if the reason why we work is unto the Lord. I mean, Monday morning, another day to glorify Jesus. Not to make a buck, not to get promoted, not to feel better about myself because look what I do. But you're doing it as unto the Lord. That just levels the playing field. That means that we're all in our dream job. 
because we are working for him. So just bust, and also bust this narcissistic modern invention called the midlife crisis. I'm, I'm 39, so I'm like in that. It, it's this modern thing where we kind of take stock at the middle of our life and we wonder if, it, if what we're giving ourselves to, if we're actualizing ourselves. Are we, you know, are we the person that we had hoped that we'd be? Are we in the job that we had hoped that we would be? And it's just, it just reeks of individualism and it's, it's, it's not a godly concept at all. How do you break free from getting stuck in a midlife crisis? Here's how you get, before your midlife, you work for the glory of God. During your midlife, you work for the glory of God. After your midlife, you work for the glory of God. And it just, it's all a 10. I mean, this is amazing news because this is telling me that I can't lose. It doesn't matter where I work, I am going to enjoy what I do because I'm not doing it intrinsically for the pay, for the position, for the promotion. I'm not I'm doing it as unto the Lord. So it doesn't really matter what I do. Now, I do believe that God created us to perform certain functions in society. So let's nuance this a bit here. But, but at its core, if you're in a situation you don't like, you don't have to sit there and say, oh, wouldn't it be great in five years if I was done? No, look, it can be great now because of what Paul is saying to us. If you truly do it as unto the Lord. Masters, treat your bondservants fairly and justly, knowing that you too have a master. If you have a position of authority, God wants you to operate in that position of authority as one, excuse me, God wants you to operate in that position of authority the way God exercises his authority over you. How do you handle your position of authority? Whatever it is, a coach, a parent, um, employer, you treat your people. You exercise your authority the way Jesus exercised his authority over you. He's the king of kings, lord of lord, lords, and the boss of bosses. He's, he, we, all, we all have a boss. His name is Jesus. So while understanding that you do have a fiduciary responsibility to your, to your company, so, you know, maybe you're, like, in some kind of middle management and you've got boss and you oversee people or you are the boss, like, you know, the buck stops at you or you own the company or whatever it is, um, you, you do have a fiduciary responsibility to work on behalf of the company. That's why you're, you're hired. That's why you're given. But, you, but God would want you... To, tr- to handle your responsibility differently than the way everyone else handles his responsibility. You see, here's the thing. Christians do everything that non-Christians do. They just don't do it the same way. We're all in the same, we're all, we, we just do it, we do it completely different. And so that means that we don't seek, if you're, in a, if you're an employer, you don't seek to squeeze every ounce of productivity out of your employees. It means that what you're. It, it means that you don't think like, well, I've got to make sure that this employer, this employee, is giving way more to the company than we are giving to them. You don't think like that. You think about how you. You think about caring for them. You, 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 well, on a low end, you treat them the way you would want to be treated. 
It means you, give, you, you, you pay them as well as you can pay them. I mean, according to their education, their background, their experience, talent, all that. I mean, I'm, you, you do have that responsibility. But you're, you're seeking to take care of them. You're thinking about the rest of their life. You're thinking about uh, their health care. You're thinking about their retirement. You're, you're, think, you're educating them. You're, 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 you're treating them that way. It means that you, you insist that they don't cheat their families. Don't you get caught up in demanding that your employees overwork. Insist that they don't cheat their families. If you have that, if you have that opportunity to do that. And if the company takes a hit, I think you should take a hit with them. So maybe you lose a bunch of sales and you can't afford your workforce anymore. I think you take a hit with your employees. Jesus said in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not the hired hand. The hired hand only shows up when the pay is high and the hours are low. I am the good shepherd. When the wolf comes, I don't go like the hired hand. I stay and I lay down my life for the sheep. Hey, when the wolf comes in your company, do you, are you willing to lay down your life for those God has put you has put under your authority. You, you, you do realize that, right? You realize that God is the one who put you in that position. No, Jesus, when he's standing before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know that I could, I have the authority, your life is in my hands? And Jesus says, the only authority you have is the authority that my father has given you. The only authority you have is the authority that Jesus has given you. So I think that you should take up the servant leadership style of Jesus and be willing to lay down your life. Now that could be, new, it's, not, it's not prescribed, but you have to think about in my leadership, in my, those who are, that are, I'm leading, that I have authority over, that God's put me in this position. Your company didn't do that. God put you in that position for such a time as this to express what it lo- what a boss looks like who's been transformed by the gospel. It means that, you, that you, you think of ways, how can I lay down my life for my employees? Um, if, they, if, they, if you got employees that start to like not perform very well, consider training them instead of firing them. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you, you hired them in the first place. You've got to take some of the blame. I mean, maybe you just stink at figuring out what good talent is or not. Invest in them. I mean, if there's bad attitudes and I'm, you know, don't overhear what I'm saying. But, like, be willing to in, invest in them. And don't get conceited about your position, but use your position to maximize kingdom Impact. Here's a verse for those of us who have authority or, or prestige or wealth. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge, this is Paul talking to a young pastor, telling them, how do you deal with people who have influential positions and a lot of money? Charge them not to be haughty, which means prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So that all Paul's trying to do in, in, to an employee or employer is to orientate us to look to Jesus in, in everything that we do. They are, tell them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may not take a hold of what is truly life. So sometimes if you have authority and influence and power and money, you, begin, you can begin to read your own press, which is kind of, like I brought myself into this position. Like I've worked hard and I've been ambitious and I went to school and I did things people aren't willing to do. No, no, you need to understand. You need to have a, 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 a conviction. No, God, God gave me the ambition. God gave me the intellect. God, God knew this. God put me in this place. I, I don't want my position. I don't want my wealth to become an opportunity for me to think of somehow that, I've, that I'm, I'm elevated but actually, I need to take my position, as Paul is Paul saying, and leverage it for kingdom impact, which means that I need to, even though everyone else is seeing me as some authority figure, I need to be like Jesus and lay my life down and serve the people God's called me to leave. I need to be generous. I need to, to, I need to be willing to share and give away. I need to excel in good works. Not laying up treasures in this life, but laying up treasures in heaven. How do I, here's how I want to end this talk. Because um, I didn't have any idea until earlier, is that I want in First Corinthians four, Paul says, "How should one regard us? Those of us who are Christians, how should one regard us?" He says this. He says, "As servants of Jesus Christ, what is your what should be your goal as an employee or an employer? If you're the boss, if you're the one giving orders or the one taking orders, what should be your goal? It should be that the people." around you regard you as servants of Jesus Christ. That they see you under the very real authority of Jesus and how you treat other people and how you apply yourself with integrity to your work, not 90% of the time, but 100% of the time. The way that you treat your employees, the way that you love them, the way that you lay down your life for them and the fact that you excel in good works and the fact that you're living for hope Beyond this, you see, if you do not really get and trust and believe in this idea that there is a heaven, that there is an afterlife, and you put your hope in this life, it doesn't, I mean, heaven is a real idea. Eternity with him is a real idea, and he promises to richly reward us. So we don't, we're not ones who feel like we've got to squeeze every little ounce of joy out of this life. I really got to have the job that I really want because this is all I got. I got 60-year window that I got to make the most of it. No, no, no. Hey, we've got all of heaven that God's going to richly reward us. That's a real, that's, that's reality for us. As a boss, you don't have to feel like, well, I've, I've got all this wealth and I've, and, I, and I've accumulated it and I've got to protect it. And, you know, there's, God says in Luke 15, you fool, don't you know that this very night your life is required of you? Don't get haughty. Don't get conceited in the wealth that is certain to fade away. But use, use, be wise. Be wise with every opportunity. In fact, next week, Paul's going to talk about how we do basically evangelism. He wants to address our life holistically in marriage relationships, uh, parent and child and employee, employer. He's going to say, hey, get, get your lives wrapped around the gospel and how you work and how you have authority over people. And then he's going to say next week, we'll get into this, now take advantage of every opportunity. Be wise with outsiders. Has very much a gospel impact. So do people around you see you as a servant of Christ? Or do you operate just the same way everyone else operates? You slack off when the boss isn't looking. You overwork and get anxious because you're worried about not getting the promotion or the pay that you hope to have. 
Why don't you get out your communication card? 